Welcome to the Locked On Heat 2006 NBA Finals Rewatch. On today's show, we'll revisit Miami's Game 2 loss to the Mavericks to go down 2-0 in the series after which it looked like the Mavs were on their way to winning the title. But could we see hints of Miami's comeback? We'll dig into that and more coming up next. Terry puts it up. Won't go. Rebound Wade. The Miami Heat, they've done it. They win their first championship in franchise history. Congratulations, Miami Heat. 2006 NBA champion. But it was our time. I really believe that it was our time. One of the best feelings I ever had in my life. So I'm going to live it up. So we deserve it. All right. Welcome to episode two of the Locked On Heat 2006 NBA Finals Rewatch. Thank you for subscribing on YouTube, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Wes Goldberg here with David Ramil. Thank you so much for making Locked On Heat. Your first listen every day. We're going back to each game of the 2006 Finals, where we'll discuss the best performances, the biggest what-ifs, and go through some fun categories. Game 1 went up on Monday. We're talking about Game 2 today. The Heat lost the game 99-85 to in Dallas to go down 0-2 in the series. And after the game, ESPN's Chris Sheridan wrote, after two games, the Mavs already look like champions. David, of course, we know that that was not going to be true. Why don't you tell us about how we got here? Oh, unbelievable. Game one loss had shown that Miami couldn't simply steamroll their way to a championship, but game two only proved that the Heat needed a miracle. Both the Heat and Mavs started off the game really sloppily, combining for just 35 points between the two teams and 10 total turnovers. Dallas shot 33%, abysmal, but downright electric compared to Miami's 28.6%. The first quarter also showed something else, that Shaquille O'Neal was not going to be a factor. Shaq played 10 and a half minutes and shot just twice from the field. He struggled from the line after the first game and then told reporters he was overthinking things. Well, he was practically Albert Einstein in game two, going one of seven from the line. Miami's offense was built around O'Neal going to work around the basket and then kicking it out to shooters. But the Mavericks didn't dominate at center, but they had just enough size and sang a job and Eric Dampier to challenge Shaq, and what they lacked in size they made up for by disrupting any passes to O'Neal. Passes made more difficult as well by Dallas's perimeter defenders. Shooters went cold, Shaq was rendered useless, and the Heat went into halftime having scored a total of 34 points and down by 16. The third quarter was much the same, and Dallas's lead eventually grew to 27, and after eight ineffective minutes in the third quarter, Pat Riley did the unthinkable and sent O'Neal to the bench. He finished with just five points, the lowest scoring total of his playoff career. But as O'Neal sat down and as cameras frequently cut to capture what must have been a mix of frustration and embarrassment, Miami found something, something that started to work. Alonzo Mourning was more fluid and mobile. The offense didn't bog down as much as they didn't have to work everything through a limited O'Neal. Antoine Walker and Jane Posey found their range from the perimeter and Dwayne Wade, while far from dominating, attacked the Mavs' defense relentlessly and was sent to the free-throw line a total of 14 times. He came back to make things more presentable, maybe, but they never really were never really in the game at all. Down 0-2 in the series, things looked bleak, yet they found a recipe for success and a weakness they could exploit and an identity that wasn't built around their 34-year-old center, but a player 10 years younger. The Heat needed a miracle, and they would receive it in Game 3 by somebody who would single-handedly change the course of the series. And that person was obviously going to be Dwayne Wade, and you mentioned kind of finding that recipe of success there, and it was so interesting. You and I, in, in the Game 1 rewatch, discussed, okay, yeah. when does it change? Because like you said, everything was going through Shaq in the post. We know that as a series goes on, 
Dwayne Wade takes over, becomes the hero, and basically achieves legendary status by by winning these finals. And uh, I and one of the things I was interested in watching is okay, when does that happen? Right. When does the offense go from feed Shaq in the low post, basically right. a triangle offense, because that's basically what they're running, to let Dwayne Wade go to go to work? And and you're right, we kind of saw we started to see that offensive scheme switch a little bit here, where it was in when in doubt. Put Dwayne Wade at the top of the floor and let him attack. And even to the point where it wasn't even just not feeding Shaq. It was, you right. know, Shaq coming up and setting screens and Dwayne Wade bringing the ball up the floor. Because very old school in approach here for most of the game with either Jason Williams or Gary Payton bringing the ball up. And then dishing to Dwayne Wade. I mean, Miami's pet play was Jason Williams dribbles the ball for 10 seconds while Dwayne Wade tries to find an opening in Dallas's defense. Catches the ball and then settles into a mid-range jumper. That was basically Miami's offense for a game and a half in the, in the beginning of the series. And... That gets that, that hints at my takeaway here in a minute, but you also mentioned Shaq, and he's sort of the through line of your uh, uh, of your summary there, and that that leads us right into our trivia. Um, Shaquille O'Neal finished the game with just five points, so the question for our trivia is: if that's the fewest points in Shaq's Finals career, how many times did he ever finish with single digits? Again, five points. That was the fewest points in his NBA Finals career. Did he ever finish? with single digits in another time, David, do you think? No, I don't. Uh, so he did finish one other time. Uh, oh. He fi- he finished, uh, the, this was the, obviously the fewest points in Shaq's final career. He only finished with single digits one other time. The game was game six. Ah, the okay. winning game of this series, he scored just nine. So it wasn't as bad as five. Right, no, but, but still, it, it pre- tells the story well. that it never really got a whole lot better for Shaq in this yeah, in this series, and so that's the first trivia. My second trivia question here: um, At this point in league history, teams in the NBA Finals had fallen back 2-0 in the series a total of 27 times. How many times uh, did that team that fell back 0-2 in the series go on to win the finals, David? I think I, I think I saw something about this maybe three times before. They, twice. Miami became, okay, twice before. Okay, there we go. I was close. It had been done in 30 years, the 1969 Celtics and the 1977 Trailblazers. So, again, had not been done in thir- almost 30 years by the time Miami would obviously go on the and Blazers, do it. Blazers, extra heat trivia. The Blazers in 77, coached by former NBA, uh, Miami Heat color commentator uh, Dr. Jack Ramsey, too. So that's wow. All, yeah. That is a nice little trivia. See, trivia the trivia guy. Um, <laughs> all right, David, what's your takeaway from the game? Oh, uh, just seeing Shaq rendered useless. I think that uh, as I, you know, I kept recurring. I, that was the recurring theme, as you said, and, and it's just like you, you, you kind of expect him to just dominate at some point. But it was so clear at this point at 34 that he was no longer capable of having those prolonged stretches. Uh, you know, he, I, I know the camera cut to him being frustrated, like they weren't feeding him the ball as well because you know Miami's perimeter passers were being challenged by Dallas's defenders. But even when he did get the ball. He wasn't able to do anything with it. His job or or Dampier in particular were just making things so much more difficult for him, and that was the big takeaway for him, for me was just seeing how how unimportant Shaq was to that game in general, and then eventually to Miami's success. Because I know a lot of people have kind of just revisited history or re- rewrote it to some extent, and just said, you know what, Shaq was a factor, in, but he really wasn't. At least not in games one and two, he wasn't. My takeaway is I have no idea how the Heat won this series at all. <laughs> Watching the first two games, I, I have no idea yeah. how they come back. They don't lose another game in this whole yeah. series. I have no idea how that's possible, having watched 
not just game one, but game two, a game that they they were losing as many by as, as by as many points as twenty seven. Yep, they lost their composure in the game. They fouled Dallas a whole lot. Uh, they were turning the ball over needlessly. They were arguing calls uh, in a way that Dallas was not, and uh, like they they gave up a pair of four point plays. Oh, in this yeah. game, it was oh, just boy. they completely lost their composure, and and I hate to say this, David, but Pat Riley was completely outcoached by Avery Johnson. You watch the game plan that Dallas had in these first two games; it feels nuanced and modern and and thoughtful in a way that Pat Riley's is it was just a hammer going at a nail. Where it was like, hey, we're going to be bigger and badder, and we're just going to try to pound the the paint and everything. And the the Mavericks' game plan through these first two games was, hey, we're going to pack the paint, and we dare you. We dare you to score at the rim. And yeah. for two straight games, that's all Miami tried to do. And when they couldn't do it, they were just bricking perimeter shots. They weren't getting anything open. They were avoiding three-pointers altogether, uh, just trying to get to the basket. And it just wasn't working. And I, and you just can't help but think, wow, Avery Johnson, who, was, of course, was the coach of the year that season, coaching circles around Pat Riley for the first two games. Yeah, I don't think that's an overstatement. No, I don't think so either. Uh, I, I mean, you can only do so much as you can with your personnel but you're right at some point you have to recognize uh that there needs to be something different and i think we started to see that like you know like again yeah. Shaq was fuming on the bench there and riley just ch- chose not to play him and and he and you know he entrusted his backup players to go out there as they kind of staged a mini run they cut that lead into a, a little bit uh but overall you know Riley did not make the kind of adjustments necessary, but he did make them over the course of the series, and that's what yes. we're going to see moving forward. But yes, at this point in time, it's a good a good observation. It does not seem like the Heat have any chance in hell of coming back in this series. Right, it's like Chris Sheridan wrote in that piece. It looks like the Mavericks are on their way to a championship, and you can't. And that was the overwhelming sentiment following Game Two. Right, right. is this is over, and I can't blame anybody for saying that, which only makes what happens next. Even more miraculous. We saw hints of it with Dwayne Wade. We'll get to that here in a minute. But first, today's episode is brought to you by BetOnline. BetOnline.net is the fastest and easiest way to check in on all of your betting needs. Find all of your favorite sports and events at the number one online source for odds, lines, and games. Find reviews and news of every league, including Major League Baseball, NFL, NBA, NHL, combat sports, esports, even golf. BetOnline continues to be the top online resource for all of your sport wagering information from live in-game betting, scores, and podcasts. They have you covered. Head to the BetOnline today or use your mobile device to learn more about the action happening today. BetOnline, where the game starts. Back here with our Locked On Heat 2006 NBA Finals rewatch. We had our takeaways. We had some trivia. We said that it looked impossible for Miami to come back in this series. And one of the reasons why is because the Mavericks absolutely dominated Game 2 in a way that it didn't feel like Miami could overcome. Right. But let's get into our categories here, David. What was your turning point for the game? Oh, uh, the stretch right before halftime when Jerry Stackhouse hit three consecutive three-pointers, the second one being a four-point play, as you alluded to earlier. Uh, That was just an absolute backbreaker and shout out to the Mavericks looking as you said also very progressive in their overall offensive approach they shot 19 total threes they hit a bunch of them uh they were working their way 
you know, with 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 either Nowitzki or somebody else attacking the paint, Josh Howard attacking the paint, and then flaring it out to, to shooters on the perimeter. Stackhouse was hitting those shots. They had a couple of good looks from Jason Terry, Nowitzki, et cetera. Uh, just a very, very egalitarian offense that just kept Miami on edge all night. Like, they had no answer for it. But, yes, the Stackhouse back-to-back-to-back three-pointers, just an absolute breaker. Because at that point, it was just a slough, right? It was just a really ugly game. Both teams missing free throws, missing a bunch of shots. It was just an ugly game. And then at some point, Dallas just said, you know what? We can figure our way around Miami's defense. And everything started clicking for them. And then that's just the beginning of where they wound up going on to that third quarter where they just started blowing out Miami completely. And that's when Shaq got the, the hook and got set to the bench. Yeah, Miami was outscored 64-41 to 41 between quarters yeah. two and three. Uh, Jerry Stackhouse, is that, that, that 10-point run that he made right before the end of the first half there, yeah. Longest for any player in NBA in an NBA Finals game at that point, obviously, since Isaiah Thomas scored ten in a row during a Pistons game in 1990. So uh, that was how rare that was back then. Obviously, we were not completely in the age of just taking threes at right. all times. Well, that was uh, another that thing too. They, they pointed out common. They, they pointed out that the the biggest deficit ever in a playoff game had been 21 that any team had yeah. managed to come back from. Like that. That can't be the case nowadays. I, no. I, I don't even know what it is, but it's just so easy to come back from a 21-point deficit because of the three-point shot. So I, was, I just find that a little interesting. And that Antoine Walker was it on is, the receiving end of both of those. But anyway. It is funny how the math just changed, right? You obviously just add one more point with the advent of taking more threes. But it does, the whole all the math, everything like that has just changed so dramatically over the last few years. Uh, I'm going to actually go back a few minutes earlier. I actually think the game was lost even before Stackhouse's back-to-back-to-back threes. It was at around the six-minute mark of the second quarter. Gary yeah. Payton steals the inbound mm-hmm. and then immediately just gives the ball away. He's trying to pass it backwards to Jason Williams, yeah. and it's Jason Terry basically picks it off. And it's a pick six, essentially, right right near the end zone. He just picks it off, lays it up. And that, at that point, would have ended what was a 7-0 run for Dallas. Instead, it becomes a 9-0 run for the Mavericks, and then they go on. Uh, to a 13-0 run. It was a six-point game at the at that point, um, and, and then and and then Stackhouse's back-to-back-to-back threes makes it a 16-point game. So um, I, I think that if if Gary Payton had not screwed up that inbound steal, and then Miami goes down the other end, and at that point they would have been able to tie the game. I think yeah. at, if if they score there, it's it's a four-point swing. And it just feels like Dallas had all the momentum. Gary Payton almost literally stole that momentum and then gave that momentum right back. And then that kind of laid out the red carpet for Stackhouse's back-to-back-to-back threes. So had Gary Payton just not screwed that up, maybe Miami gets back in that game. They hold on to the momentum and and everything else. But uh, probably not. I don't know. So It's hard, it's hard to look at any one moment, right? Like what, re-watching yeah. this game... They were just out of it completely. Like even yeah. that mini comeback they had, uh, it just didn't feel like they were ever really going to able. Didn't it kind of? Some. Didn't it feel a little bit like the the dry stretches of this last yeah. playoff run for Miami, where you just it just felt like there was a lid on the basket, no matter how yeah. much they tried to pound the yeah, paint, Wade get to the rim, and all this stuff. Like yeah. Wade missing layups, like it was just unbelievable. Like uh, you know, curling around defenders, and he gets a little mini hook shot from like two feet away. A bunny uh, that we know that he could yeah. finish, like Shaq, not able to finish around the rim. Like it was just unbelievable. How I don't know. It just seemed like a, it was so difficult for them to get any kind of clear look. Eventually, some of those threes fell, but that was a little too little, too late. 
Uh, let's. Well, you mentioned Dwayne Wade there. Let's get into our next category. It's our flashbulb moment. It's that moment that added to Dwayne Le- Wade's legacy here in the finals. What's your moment, David? Uh, one moment there where he, I think, collects a rebound or forces a steal, and then he just initiates a one-man fast break, and he's got Dirk like on roller skates, and he crosses him over so badly that at one point, like Dirk just shuffles his feet, and he has no idea where Dwayne is, who curls around him and comes in for a, an incredible dunk. Uh, it was, I think, in the second quarter, so the blowout hadn't really started in earnest yet, but it was just an amazing, impressive display of athleticism from him. The end-to-end speed, kind of like Russell Westbrook in his peak, I, I'd say. Uh, and then again, just the, the flat. And it's not that Nowitzki was a great defender, but he just looked completely outclassed by Dwayne Wade there on that move. And he does it in such few steps. Yeah. You know, he's got that long well, gait. the dribble, just, too. It, like, it, just yeah, didn't stop. Um, I knew you were going to pick that one, so I picked a oh, different t- one on purpose. Okay. Um, in the fourth it, quarter, it nice game's already, the game's already out of hand. Game's already done. Yeah. That's important here. Nine, nine and a half minutes left in the fourth quarter. Game's already over. Dwayne Wade gets an offensive rebound, just goes up for an offensive rebound, gets fouled at the basket. And the reason I bring that up is because, like I said, game's already over. And yet you have Dwayne Wade battling against the bigs like Jop and Dampier. I don't remember exactly what center was in the game at that point, but Dallas is a big team. And he's battling against those guys, following up a Miami Heat miss, to try to just muscle his way, literally carry his team, just to get back into the game, right? And obviously they kind of did, even though it was a little fictitious, where they got back into within 12 points there. But um, I just love that he was still doing it. I just love that he's still going up there for offensive rebounds, still putting his body on the line, still taking that physical punishment and getting to the free throw line. Uh, he got to the free throw line in this game 14, 14 times. times. And yeah. so this kind of starting to lay the seeds for what he would obviously do starting next game in game three. But um, that to me was the flashbulb moment. It was just that was it. And then even when he was at the free throw line, Mike Breen, Hubie Brown, yeah. discussing just how 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 humble he is and how he's the hardest worker on the team and, and right. all this kind of stuff about how, you know, he, he puts his body out there and this is his game. I just thought it was really cool. No, yeah, I, I'm glad you brought up the Breen moment because I was going to say that too. It was just to hear the, the commentators gushing about Dwayne's work ethic and the fact that as a young star, like I, I, it, the marketing on him, it wasn't quite clear. They didn't know exactly how to talk about him because, you know, he's in his third year. Yeah. And like you're trying to find a superstar, and I don't think Dwayne was just that yet. You're kind of building up LeBron, but LeBron didn't have the playoff success that Dwayne had. So there's this kind of void here. And Kobe wasn't really Kobe without Shaquille O'Neal in Los Angeles either. So there's like this kind of gap there in terms of like who's going to be the face of the league. It can't be Tim Duncan because he's right. too boring. So you're just trying to find out, like, oh, oh Dwayne's an exciting well, young player that everybody should be watching. And, and it reminds me a little about- bit of. Uh- the conversation around John Morant right now, you know, mm-hmm. and, and you, and like D Wade was the cover of the, what was the EA sports basketball game? It wasn't 2006. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, it was whatever the EA one was. Um, he was the cover of, he was the cover athlete for that video game that year. And he was, yeah. and he was starting to pop up in magazines, Mike Breen yeah. and Hubie Brown, even talking about how he ended people up on magazine. the list of 50 most beautiful people, which, you know, good for you <laughs> D Wade. Um, it's he, ultimately that it landed him Gabrielle union. So it worked. So I don't think that's how it worked. <laughs> I don't think that's how it worked, but uh, I mean, yeah. So, um, so yeah, I, um, it was just cool. It was cool. His, yeah, his, uh, his star was on the rise for sure. Speaking of Mike Breen, uh, time for Bang and Brown, a moment where we revisit the broadcast from the game. What do you have? 
I, again, it wasn't anything that UB said because they're they're just great. I got to be honest with you. I, I am so impressed really, yeah. by UB and Mike Breen. Their chemistry together, it's fantastic. Like I know UB's a little old. I know a lot of Heat fans hate UB Brown for things he may or may not have even said during the Big Three era. But I I don't know why. Like he can, was I, fantastic I, I, can I can I comment on that? I'm, sure. I'm with you. Hubie Brown is awesome, and I he still does stuff. I like watch. I like listening to him now. Yeah. Um, I, I Hubie Brown, his whole shtick is he's gonna take the underdogs' side. He's gonna because he's a coach, right? He's a coach at heart. And so when there's a team that's down by ten points, he's gonna be like, "All right, here's what we gotta do. Here's what we gotta do." That's what he's always gonna say. That's because he's a coach and he ta- he takes that side. Um, and when the Big Three era was really going, yeah. they weren't losing a whole lot. And so I think that's why in those primetime games and Hubie Brown was calling those games, I think Heat fans were like, well, why is he actively rooting for the underdog? Well, it's because he was, because that's the shtick. That's what he does. And so it wasn't anti-Heat. It was just anti-favorite, and, and you shouldn't take that personally. My uh, my Bang and Brown moment was— Oh, wait, was, wait. May, may oh. I say something? Sorry. It was just something yeah. that Stuart Scott said as a sideline reporter covering the Max, uh, uh, talking about uh, Devin Harris being picked on as a rookie. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> By Dirk. By Dirk. And that, that I was just, I'm, again, like between that, the Erica Dampier comments, like everybody's just like opening up the, the can of worms here. Like Reporting things that was would so much never, better back then. Yeah. Nobody would ever report about these things. Imagine, like, I can't even imagine David ever saying like, oh yeah, Dirk used to make my life miserable as a rookie. Like he would pick right. on me all the time. Like that's never getting out there. Like, and now they're talking about during the NBA finals, like. You've got people all over the world going, Jesus Christ, are you picking on Devin Harris? What's wrong with you? Like, what's yeah. <laughs> that's just like a nice guy? What's your problem? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just you would never see that in today's <laughs> game at all. I can't imagine it was anything comparable. No, you wouldn't. Uh, I'm glad you brought that up. The sideline reporting through the first two games is just tremendous. Like Stuart yep. Scott and Lisa Salters are doing such a good job, and and like you said, they're getting really great anecdotes. <laughs> yeah. And and I just I miss that. I wish can, can we get rid of the dumb coaching interview after each quarter and just get more access for the sideline reporters. And that's, yeah. I, I would gladly, I would gladly replace those two. Moves. I would gladly the, the, yeah, swap the, the questions at the end of the, the, the start of the second and fourth quarter, like we don't need that. What do you got to do to slow down Dirk? I don't know. Just hope that he stops making shots. Yeah. And like, I don't need to hear that anymore. I'm good. Um, <laughs> yeah. It would my, be like Avery my, Bradley and like a, a high pitched nasally voice being asked like how he's contained, how he's contained Shaquille O'Neal. Avery like, Johnson. Yeah. yeah. yeah sorry. Oh, what did I say? Avery Bradley? The other Avery. Yeah. Uh, Avery Johnson being asked in his high-pitched voice, like, <laughs> how do you slow down Shaq? It's like, ah. Oh. Yeah, he's a great player. We just got to keep working hard, you know? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> mine is that uh, I forgot Dwayne Wade had the flu. Oh. I forgot that. it. Yeah. They, they mentioned it a lot in the beginning of this broadcast. He had, flu, he had a flu in game one. He had a flu in game two. He had a flu through the previous two rounds of the playoffs through his great series against the Pistons. It, Everybody talks about Michael Jordan's flu. Nobody yeah. talks about D Wade's flu. I forgot he had the flu. Did you remember that? No, but like, how much of it did it actually impact him? Like, they make it seem like he was sickly throughout the first few rounds of the playoffs, and then he's still kind of battling through it in Game One. I mean, he looked pretty okay to us. I, I don't know that I, he didn't seem like he was sick, and maybe that's just a testament to the strength of Dwayne's game. But I really did maybe. not remember that being a thing at all. He wasn't. He wasn't selling it like Michael Jordan leaning on Scottie Pippen. Like <laughs> could have gotten an. He should have gotten an Oscar for that man. You didn't have to lean on Scottie Pippen. Get out of here, Michael Jordan. Um, all right. <laughs> Coming up next, I got a big what if that I want to explore with you, David. This is our Locked On Heat 2006 NBA Finals rewatch. You can reach out to Locked On Heat on Twitter. 
at Locked On Heat, on Instagram at Locked On Heat, and of course, we are on YouTube. If you have not yet subscribed, make sure you subscribe there. Subscribe wherever it is that you love to listen to your podcasts. Before we get to our what ifs and my rankings of the top 10 players in the series through two games so far, David, before we get to that, we have another category to get to. It's called the center belt. And if I think Locked On Heat, longtime Locked On Heat listeners might remember the power forward belt from way back then when we were awarding the the rotating cast of James Johnson, Luke Babbitt, and Derek Williams. Uh, This one's a little bit different. We're going to give the championship belt here to the best center of the game for the Miami Heat, so either Shaq or Alonzo Mourning. Who gets your center belt right now, David? Who's wearing the belt? It's it's not even close. Uh, Well, for the game itself, uh, it's got to be so. Like, it it was – like, he, he wound up playing more meaningful minutes he went up just looking a step faster. I, again, he even outscored Shaq, not by much, just one point, but it was enough. Like he, he seemed like he was, again, just a different, better player out there, at least for the way Dallas was defending them. Like he, they weren't forcing the ball into him. He was able to create more opportunities. Yeah. He still had that little hook shot around the basket. Uh, he just wasn't being challenged, I think. Like he, he was obviously physically limited given the fact that he had just lost a kidney. But having said all that, he still looked a little bit more nimble, a little bit more agile than Shaq at that point in their career. Um, He was a plus 13 in 20 minutes. Shaq was a minus 27. Not great. In about 28 minutes. That's a 40-point swing. And now plus minus doesn't exactly work that way, but it kind of does. And so Dallas's largest uh, lead was 27 points, too. So it was every minute that Shaq was out there, I guess. (laughs) <laughs> there you go. If the if that not for that, the Heat win this game by 13. Maybe that should be my what if. Um, <laughs> yeah, I played five minutes in game one. Played 20 minutes in game two. We're yeah. starting to see the tide turn a little bit towards the Alonzo Morning stuff here. We just we all remember those of us who remember the 2006 Finals how big of an impact Zoe had on that series. And so game one didn't really reflect that. Game no. two obviously did. And that leads me to my what if of all the right. game. It's our first what if of our rewatch series. What if the Heat had gone small? Mm. Antoine Walker at the five. He had a nice game, right? 20 points on 8 of 16 shooting, 4 of 7 from three-point range, had four rebounds, a couple assists, had a block. That was a better game than he had in game one, but he's been scoring in a way that Shaq and Alonzo Mourning have not, even through the first two games of this series. If they had gone small with Antoine at the five... um, UD at the four. I guess... No, not even UD at the four. I'm going Posey at the four. And then D. Wade, Gary Payton, and Jason Williams as your backcourt. Let me get the scores out there. Posey didn't score a whole lot, but he played good defense in the game. He did. Especially when he would get switched onto Dirk. I thought he actually did a pretty decent job, considering that Dirk was awesome this game. But I thought Posey did as good a job as anybody. Um, Give me that five. The Heat get the game within 13 points uh, with five and a half minutes left in the game after Antoine Walker made a three. At that point, I just wonder, what if... You go small and then force Dampier and Jop off the floor. They were playing so well for Dallas, outplaying Shaq and even Alonzo Mourning, who we just said had a good game. But those guys were the best two centers on the court all game. Take those guys off the floor completely. Force Dirk to defend in space and at the rim. I don't know. What if? What happens? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. It's not like either Jop or Dampier are a focal point offensively. I don't know that. I mean, I can't I can't remember what their career highs might have been, but I don't think anybody was like forcing the ball into them and having them go to work. And you wonder whether or not, even if they had Walker or Pose guarding them uh, at various minutes, 
whether or not they would just be able to draw fouls on the two because, again, not the most nimble big men. It's kind of just like they're banging bodies out there with a guy like Shaq because he's getting that uh, abuse and they're giving it to him and vice versa. But with a smaller player on him like Antoine Walker or something like that, I wonder whether or not uh, they would have gotten those foul calls in their favor. Could have changed things. It seems a little yeah. unusual. I, I don't know. Maybe I, I'd still kind of want UD out there just for the added size and defense just in case. But either way, I, well, I'd he didn't like play in that idea. fourth quarter because of the shoulder yeah. injury. Yeah. So I guess what if his shoulder wasn't wasn't bothering him also? But um, I don't know. Obviously, they never would have done it. You just don't see teams play like yeah, that. I mean, playing Antoine time. Walker at the four was considered small, and Miami did that only every once in a while. Yep. Um, so no teams were doing that back then. I just wonder. Even Detroit, like what if, like, what if they Wallace and Rashid Wallace, like I mean, yeah. those were smallish type players, not not the traditional center. All right, I want to go through my rankings. I put together Four. the best ten players in the series so far through. So just through these uh, first two games, right. can you guess who number one is? Jason Terry. Yeah, Jason Terry is number one. Number two is Dirk Nowitzki. Hmm. I've got Dwayne Wade at number three. Now, we yeah. can explore that top three in that order if you want, but I think it's pretty unarguable, and yeah. as the reason you guessed it, that Jason Terry was number one. At this point in the series, Jason Terry had 48 total points. He was shooting 57.6%, 38.5% from three-point range. He had 10 assists and only four turnovers in the game and was a plus 18. He was dominating. He was the best player on the floor. If you, Bill Simmons likes to do, do this exercise all the time, but I think it's a good one. If you took an alien and just put them courtside and said, who's the best player on the court right now? And I obviously don't know about reputation or right, narrative context, or, or yeah. anything like that. It's clearly Jason Terry. Yeah. No, I don't think there's any arguing that. Like he was okay. like it, just the momentum, the energy, his shots from the perimeter. Like, again, even those big plays, like when he's forcing a turnover and getting to the rim, he had like these dunks that he's so smallish. Right. And yet he's able to kind of just sky in for a dunk and, and all of those. Every one of them seemed to electrify the crowd and, and yeah. shift everything in Dallas's favor. He's he's been by far the the most important player. Dirk and D Wade was pretty close for me, honestly. Dirk had yeah. forty two points in the series on forty percent shooting. D Wade was leading the series already through two games and just yeah. total points at fifty one, but he's only shooting thirty eight point six percent at this point. He's getting to the line. Um, but Dirk was a plus twenty six, and Dwayne Wade's team lost the first two games. So I'm going with the winning team there. I'm going with Dirk, and also. Man, Dirk is really good. I know we're gonna we're gonna spend the next four episodes probably just talking about how amazing D Wade is. So this might be our last chance to really just kind of give Dirk his flowers for the 2006 Finals. This is a guy who's in the MVP race. He was so good at seven feet tall. The the Heat were just throwing double team after double team after double team at him, and it just didn't matter. He would just rise up at seven feet tall and just drain shot after shot after shot. I hated Dirk at this point. I, I really yeah. did. Like, uh, is I he your most that... hated Maverick right now? Did he take oh, the belt from Jason Terry yet? Yeah. We weren't going to do this category, but you kind of brought it I up. I mean, I guess so. Uh, I mean, yeah, I, I guess so. Like, just, I just didn't, I don't know. Like, I started watching basketball before that whole era came around. And there was just like this widely accepted view on European players being soft. And I don't know that anything of Dirk's game necessarily changed that perspective not till much later but like right. ud was able to shut him down i remember feeling like immense pride at, at ud being able to stop his uh his mid-range game and there's the other aspect of it too it's like now we embrace the idea of a big man being able to stretch the floor and shoot from the mid-range and things of that sort but back then it was like frowned upon it was like oh yeah you, you know you can't you can't you even have hubie brown like remarking during the game that's what he's got to do see that right there 
That right there. Get to the line. Get into the post. That's the part of right. Dirk's game that's been developing. You don't need right. to be facing up all the time. You just hear that. 18-footers. What is wrong with you? And like it was almost, five years later, we're like rooting for Chris Bosh doing the exact same thing. But, you know, five, yeah. five, 2006, that wasn't the case. That was almost my banging Brown moment, too, is uh, Hubie Brown in the first quarter just be like, see, there you go. Slow it down. Slow it. it down. It's like now today, it's like speed it up. Speed it up. All right. Yeah. My, I'm going to round up my top 10 here. Uh, I got Eric Dampier at number four. He's leading no. the lead. He's leading the series right now at a plus thirty-seven. Oh. Uh, he's awesome. Completely outplaying Shaquille O'Neal. It's just crazy that this ever happened. Uh, Jerry Stackhouse, number five. We mentioned the back-to-back, the back threes. He's been nice for Dallas. I got Antoine Walker at number six. Like I said, yeah. good score, all that kind of stuff. Josh Howard, the second, like the yeah. greatest player of all time, according to the Game One broadcast, is Fantastic. here at number seven. Uh, Tasagana Jop is number eight. I got Zoe at number nine, and then I got Adrian Griffin, who's starting because his defense on Dwayne Wade. Doing a really good job of face guarding D. Wade at different times, doubling D. Wade, sticking to yeah. him. I got him at number 10, and obviously it, it's the, the most notable thing about this top 10 list is that Shaq isn't on it. So. Yeah, no, I, I don't think there's any disputing that. I think it's a fine list. Uh, you had Jason Williams on there as nine. Is that right? No, Jason Williams you- isn't there. Yeah, well, I almost had be, him. He should be in I, over Zoe that because those minutes really sucked in game one and in game two they were fine. But overall, I still think that Williams, like he was aggressive. Like I, you saw that first yeah. quarter, he's pushing the ball, he's getting there. He's just he's really smallish too. Like I had, I don't know if I fully remembered just how small he was, which makes him probably appear much more quickly than he was. But he's kind of Eddie, Eddie House sized. Like he's he's yeah. tiny out there, and he's going up against. At this point in time, like he's going up against Jop and Dampier, legitimate seven footers who weigh at least two sixty each, and he's just going in there and mixing it up with them. Not to mention, uh, you know, Novitsky at, at seven feet tall too. So you got to give him some credit. Uh, I mean, maybe I don't know. Uh, you're probably right. I like I like that he at least forces the issue on offense in a way that maybe only other the only other Heat player that's doing that is Dwayne Wade, and I guess yeah. Antoine Walker to a certain extent. But, um, you know. <laughs> He just he gets blitzed so badly defensively. I might be holding that against him too much, but uh, I'm okay with it. I mean, we're really just splitting hairs here. At the at the end of the day, it was what one, two, three, four of the top five players in the series so far have been playing for the Dallas Mavericks. All right, we've got our finishing categories here. Uh, where does this game rank? We're going to be doing this now for every game, and just in terms of watchability, uh, legendary status, uh, anything you want to kind of put. But where does this game rank after? Uh, after game one and game two, where are you where are you ranking those it, two games? I put it at number one just because again we started to see the the beginnings of something that Miami could continue to build off of, and oh. I know maybe that's just with the the benefit of hindsight there, but I also think that it was just more interesting. Yeah, it was a little bit of a blowout, a little bit more exciting, and and just seeing Jason Terry go off in game one wasn't as fun either. So I, I don't know. Uh, yeah, okay. I'd say I put game two at number one. That's a solid argument. Um, I actually really like it. I I just had it last. I, I actually have game one over game two in in terms yeah. of just sheer watchability because game two was over so early. Mm. It was basically over by halftime. Um, yeah. Where game one was over early, but not that early. Um, both these yeah, games really, just suck, though. I mean, at really the end, when we're done with this, these are going to be the last two in our in our rankings. I have a feeling. Oh, for sure. Um, all right, last two categories here: the Mark Cuban angry scale. We're doing this one to ten. Mark Cuban was a one, being the least angry, 10 being the most angry. He was a one after game one. We know, of course, by the end of the series, and probably today is probably at a 10 about this series still. Oh, at least. But uh, at this point in time, after game two uh, in, in mid-June of 2006, 
Where is Mark Cuban's anger scale? Yeah, zero. Like, I, I don't They cut to him once is all I saw. And I don't yeah. think he was really showing any kind of emotion and kind of dead eyed out there yeah. just watching it. I mean, again, they were up by 27. What's to be pissed off about? So uh, honestly, I think he was at a one, if not less. Yeah. Yeah. If, if our scale went down to zero, it would be a zero, but it doesn't. Uh, but we could. It's our scale. We could do whatever we want. So it's Make a it zero. A zero um, uh, they shot to they like panned over to somebody in the crowd with a sign saying Mark Cuban is a hero or something like that, which oh, th- of th- all was- the things that aged from this game probably yeah. aged the least well. Oh, yeah. I don't know. Well, um, it's possible. I-, I liked how they also showed like the, the comfortable seats. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that they have like, and they have a weight room right outside the locker room. Which okay, great credit to the Dallas Mavericks being on the cutting edge back in 2006. But it's so standard nowadays to have that kind of stuff. It's funny. Well, I also right. I I recall, and perhaps I'm wrong in this, but I thought that Cuba, to his credit, was like the first guy to like make the visitor locker rooms actually decent. Yeah, and and just kind of like as a way of uh, you know kind of like trying to compete for other players and kind of woo them. Uh, when yeah. they come to visit town. And, and it's a thing that the, all teams should do. Because I got to say, like, the disparity between the Heat's locker room and the Heat's visiting locker room, it's pretty big. It's pretty big. Calling yeah. it a locker room is is the ultimate compliment to what the visiting locker room is. It's a, it's, it's a broom closet. I mean, it's it, – I, I remember walking uh, in uh, before a Milwaukee Bucks game. This is probably yeah. four years ago now. But uh, a Bucks-Heat game. And Giannis just at, at his, at his quote-unquote locker, sh- legs stretched out. His his back is against one wall. His big toe is touching the other wall. That's how big that locker room is. It's ridiculous. And he's like it's, looking around. He's like, is this is this real? Like, is this serious? It, it needs an upgrade. It needs an upgrade. It, it I does. Think it's time. It does. Yeah. It's you know these, these are different times. It's 2022. You got to take care of people. Uh, last one here. Has Dwayne Wade yet achieved legendary status? I think the clear answer here is no, not yet. But nope. Starting to see the signs. Yeah, uh, I, the fact that he's getting that kind of respectful whistle from Steve Javi, Steve Javi, not the, no longer the voice from Secaucus, New Jersey, there talking about a replay or anything. Right. Steve Javi, Steve actually officiating games, and I like the inter- the exchange between him and Antoine Walker several times. Like Tuan, that's his guy. Like you know, every yeah. player has a ref that they can feel more comfortable talking to, enjoying it. And Steve Javi's his guy. Like Antoine, just kind of going, "Come on, man, you gonna call that?" And it's just hilarious to see that back and forth throughout the game. But yes, uh, Dwayne's able to get to the line 14 times uh pretty impressive and of yeah. course a, a a sign of things to come i am so excited for game three look david you and i we got through game one we got through game two of course we know what lies ahead of us it all starts on game three the comeback that had only happened at to, the, to this point in nba history only twice and not for nearly 30 years the miami heat are about to break that streak but for now That'll do it for us today. Remember to like and subscribe to Locked On Heat on YouTube or wherever you listen to the podcast. Thank you so much for making Locked On Heat your first listen every day. For your second listen, get up to date on the latest news and rumors in the NBA in just 30 minutes every day with Locked On NBA. Locked On NBA, your daily NBA update in just 30 minutes. Our rewatch of Game 3 comes out Friday. 